So my question is, how come when Pastor Matt speaks, the announcements say, and now here's Pastor Matt, and it's like, hey, thanks for being here today, you know? Yeah, Dwight, that's, you, that's your fault, pal. You're the guy. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning. Glad to be here. Hey, good morning. Glad to be here and glad that you are here this morning and to thank you for worshiping for with us. Uh, regardless of the uh, weather and, the, of course, the storm coming through, this is, uh, this is uh, nature's uh, last chance of cleaning things out for us. You know, you know, it's all dirty all winter long. This is the spring snow that comes and cleans everything up. I'm really trying to convince myself of that. Someone, someone told me that, and I said, That's, I'll grab a hold of that. I got nothing else to grab a hold of. It's going to be nice again this, this week. We're glad. Thanks for being here this morning. I do want to make one quick announcement. You know, we have watched, uh, all of us have watched the news and been watching what's taking place in Ukraine, and we've been praying, of course, and, um, and yet it seems like there's just no, no, nothing else to be done. We want to do something but what? And I know I have been thinking too, others have saying, you know, can we send money? How do we, how do we help? Uh, I'm going to put a QR code on the screen. I'm going to put it up there for now. And if you know how that works, get your phone out, take a picture of it. I'm going to put it there at the end of the service as well. I need you to know that while we're watching what's taking place around the world and feeling distant and like, what can we do? I need you to know that the Christian and Missionary Alliance, our denomination that we're a part of, we have had missionaries all along in Ukraine. Uh, they, they were taken out of the country just before the conflict began, but we have established churches throughout Ukraine and a Christian network of pastors, and I need you to know that while all this is taking place, this violence is taking place against Ukrainian people, our churches in Ukraine are actively working right now in bringing relief to the people in need. If you want to give, if you want to do something tangible, you use that QR code. That'll take you to our church webpage, and it will give you the page where you can give financially. And you can't miss the fact that it will say Ukrainian Relief. And every dollar that goes into that fund is going directly, being sent directly over to Ukraine to these pastors, Ukrainian pastors, and to the church leaders that are there that are in country and are, and are hands-on serving the needs of the people in need. You know, one of the things we look at, I've seen multiple places on television where you can give, and you always wonder, if you give there, where is it going? How does it get to, to the right people? You need to know that this is a means in which to give, that your money gets to the right place, gets to a, to a, to into the needs of uh, meeting the needs of people, but also doing so, not just meeting their physical needs, though there are many, but also meeting those needs in the name of Jesus. And so beyond just praying and beyond just look, putting your head down in pain, there is a way in which you can be a part of that and give. And we've got, we've got people on the, on the ground there. The relief arm of our denomination is called Kama. You know, our, our denomination is Christian and Missionary Alliance. Put them together, you have Kama. That's our relief arm. They are there giving, giving need and responding to the needs that are there. So I'll have the QR code up at the end of the service as well. If you go to that site, it takes you to our church webpage, and uh, we'll allow you to, uh, to give and be a part of the care of what's taking place there. This morning, we're going to begin a new series, a series that will take us uh, up to Easter and then probably even a couple weeks after Easter. For the next few weeks, I want us to look at the Gospel of John, and specifically, what I'd like to do together is take a look at the, this, this life that John had walking with Jesus. You know, he had this up-close-and-personal encounter with Jesus, and I'd like to take a look for these next few weeks and walk with John as he walks, as he lives, as he watches Jesus' interaction with people. Now, before we get into the first passage we'll look at this morning, I need to do a bit of introduction, so kind of bear with me for a little bit. 
The introduction is going to be longer than the actual looking at the passage, but it kind of sets the stage for understanding some things about John while he wrote this and all those kind of pieces. Now, one of the things I want to look at specifically as we begin is why did John write this? Why did John write the Gospel of John? I want to give credit to Andy Stanley because I was read, reading uh, something he wrote some time ago that triggered this whole thought process uh, that I want to talk about here now in these next couple of moments. Now, so two of the most misunderstood words in uh, specifically in all of religion and specifically in Christianity are the words faith and belief. Those two words are often misconstrued and not understood at all when it comes to how we apply them in our lives. Now, just for a second, let's take religion out of the story. Let's take theology out of the story and just talk about these words in a secular world, about these words of faith and this idea of believing. Now, apart from the church, we all know what the words faith and believe mean. If you kind of take it out of the church realm, we talk about believing something, we get what that means in the real world, in our homes, in our workplace, um, where we play, we believe something based on evidence. We get that. When we believe something, it's that we can see it, we can, we can attest to it, we've had eyewitness to it, so we can believe it. We make our decisions about that which we see, that the evidence that we have, what we have read. As well, we not just base our decisions, our actions based on what we see or based on what we know, but we also base it on whoever's giving us the information, correct? Oftentimes, we believe something because we believe the person who's telling us that. That's kind of a critical piece, right? That there are certain people walk up and tell you one thing, and you kind of look at them and go, I don't think so. But there are other people that they'll say something to us, and we would, we would believe it simply because of who they are. Now, it's always been a mystery to me, having young children, how I can tell my kids something, and they can come back, and they will say that their five-year-old neighbor has completely refuted everything that I have said, and they believe them. I, I just, it's just always been amazing when my children stand there and say, well, you know, Johnny said. I said, well, Johnny's five years old. Johnny doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, yes, he does. You know, and you sit there going, how can this, how can this be? But basically, the rule of thumb is you begin to believe the people that you trust. When I was in grade school, when you were in grade school, elementary school, you learned your multiplication tables. Uh, and when the teacher got up and said, eight times eight is 64, I don't think any of us said, no, liar. I don't think so. I don't think when the teacher said, eight times eight is 64, anyone said, ah, I don't think so. Not until I prove it. I'm going to go home, and I doubt any one of us went, oh, well, maybe some of you numbers people, you know, some of you CPA types maybe, but for the rest of us, we didn't go home and do a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, eight, eight. we didn't do that. Why? Because we trusted the teacher in front of us who said this is what the multiplication table means. We believe them. Now, that works pretty easily with something like math, but here's the other problem we have, right? That when we are grown-ups and we're adults and we get conflicting information, now what do you do? What do you do when you have conflicting information? You've got two stories and you're trying to figure out which one of them is correct. Sometimes it happens, we get two different pieces of information, and then we're not sure what to believe. A number of years ago, there was a study that was done that came out, definitively said that coffee is good for you. Drink coffee. A couple of years ago, another study came out that said, don't drink coffee. It's bad for you. One study came out and said, wine is good for you. A glass of wine a day is good for the heart. Just this week, I read the article that said, even the smallest consumption of alcohol shrinks your brain cells. I just read that this week. Chocolate. The study years ago came out and said chocolate is absolutely wrong for you. Newest study says chocolate's good for you. Now, here's the question I have for you. 
when you get contradictory, inf contradictory information, what do we do with that? I'll tell you what we do. We go with our bias. Whenever you get something where you're getting two different stories, we tend to go with our bias. It's called our cognitive bias. Actually, the real term is our confirmation bias. It means this. I only tend to listen to the information that already supports what I believe. That's what we do. It's happening in politics, happening with COVID, happening with the epidemic, all those kind of pieces. We tend to believe and go towards that which we already believe. So when it comes to chocolate, I don't listen to those lunatics who say it's bad. I embrace the people who know what they're talking about when they say that it's good, right? That's what we do. So in the real world, we understand what it means to believe in something or to have faith in something. It's pretty straightforward. But when you put those two terms into the realm of the church, and when you put those terms, believe or faith, in the context of religion, something strange happens. It kind of goes like this. In the case of Christianity, oftentimes, it seems that faith and belief are oftentimes divorced from reason, divorced from and confused with things like hope. I've heard people say through, through life where someone will be exploring the claims of Christ, kind of figure out if they believe in the Bible or not, and someone will say something like this, you just have to believe. What does that mean? You just have to believe it. And let's be honest, when you think of the idea you just have to believe, let's be honest, Christianity has an awful lot to believe in. I mean, the whole story of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, working miracles, the Son of God died for our sins, dead for three days, then back to life. There's a lot there to believe. If you're coming from outside, you're hearing the story, there's a lot there to believe in. There's a lot there to question. There's a lot there to wonder about. There's a lot there to consider. And then some well-meaning Christian comes along in the middle of your questioning and says, hey, listen, don't question, you just have to believe. Quite honestly, friend, I'm not even sure what that means. You just have to believe. Believe what? Believe the unbelievable. You just have to believe the unbelievable. And you know, for some of us who've been in the church, we kind of go, yeah, that's right. And yet if we go back and think about it, maybe before we made a decision to follow Jesus, we'd be thinking to ourselves, I don't know what that means. How do you just believe the unbelievable? There's a guy named Frank Turek. You may have recognized the name. He's a well-known preacher, speaker, and apologist. He lives to debate, to go on to college campuses and debate and have these, uh, these well-publicized debates with atheists. The guy is absolutely brilliant. One of the books that he wrote is this, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek. He made this statement that will bother you a little bit without understanding it, perhaps. It goes like this. He says, the reason that so many people are so easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. The reason so many are easily talked out of Christianity is they weren't talked into Christianity in the first place. Now, for many of us, we go, you shouldn't have to talk anyone into it. Well, what he's trying to say is this. What it means is this. Maybe you had a lot of questions. You weren't antagonistic, but when you first start exploring the claims of Christ, you had a lot of questions, a lot of things to, to authenticate and try to figure out. And then someone comes along and just says to you, well, you just have to believe. Maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, some Christian friend. You have some legitimate questions, and they kind of seems like they brush them aside and say, nope, you just have to place your faith in all this stuff and just believe in it. And then somewhere along the way, someone reads a book, they hear a lecture, they hear someone speak. And because they were never talked in to their faith, they were easily talked out of their faith. 
Because instead of walking through the hard question and getting answers, they were just told, well, just believe. And oftentimes, when it comes to our faith in Christ, that's kind of the picture we get. You just have to believe it. Well, I want to say to you that this is not fantasy that we're talking about. When I talk about the claims of Christ, I'm not asking you to believe fantasy. I'm not asking you to blindly believe some smoke and mirrors kind of story or illusions. I'm asking you to believe something that is real, that is true, that is factual. That's exactly what John is trying to do. John writes this because what he's trying to say to us is this. Listen, I want to talk you in to following Jesus. He wants to talk us in to throwing ourselves into a life of following and living for Jesus. That's John's intent. He said, I want to talk you in to throwing your life into a lifetime of following and serving Christ. Let me give you the background to John. The Bible tells us that John was the son of Zebedee. We don't know anything about Zebedee except for he had some sons. John, the son of Zebedee. Now, here's what John, the son of Zebedee, I think would say to us this morning. I think he would say this. I did not follow Jesus because of faith. I did not follow Jesus because someone told me, you just have to have faith, brother. No. I think he would say this. If you are following Jesus because someone told you to, you need to know there's much more to it. Much more to it. So much more. Never let someone talk you out of following Jesus because I am going to talk you in to following Jesus. I think John would say this. When you get done reading what I have recorded, I'm going to make a case for you that you would say, I believe it. That's what John would say. If you know some of the background of John, John left his father's fishing business. What we know about Zebedee, his father, is that he was, had a fishing business, and we believe it was, he was pretty wealthy. John left his father's fishing business not because of faith. You got that, right? He did not leave the business because of faith. He left because of what he saw. He saw Jesus. Now, John had lived, outlived most of the other disciples, we believe, from what we can tell time-wise. We think that John probably dictated his story, the Gospel of John, by the way it's written. By the way it's written and by the Greek language used, we think that John probably dictated it to someone. And I can imagine that people came along to John and said this, John, you, the, tell, the stories you tell are incredible. We have to record those. I mean, you were an eyewitness to Jesus. We've got to write that down. Some, you get, somehow, you've got, you got to pass out this truth along. I mean, Mark gave us Peter's story. We have Matthew's story. Luke did a thorough investigation, then he wrote his story down. John, you are an eyewitness. We have to record what you have seen and what you have witnessed, and John did that. But John did something in his book, the book of John, that no one else had done with such clarity and purpose, and that is John actually wrote for us a purpose statement. Remember school, you had an assignment, and they were trying to teach you how to write papers, and one of the things the teacher would say is you have this major paper you have to write, but the first thing you've got to do is you cannot have to come up with a purpose statement. Now, we all know that it really isn't all that critical. It's just a way for the teacher to make sure you're staying on, on mark along the way, that you have to come in and give a purpose statement. I know that some of you wrote your purpose statement on the bus that morning because you realized it was due that day. So you had to come up with a quick statement. But everything you're going to write in your paper after that is supposed to follow the purpose statement. John actually gives a purpose statement. 
He doesn't do it at the beginning. He actually does it at the end of the book. And John says this, if you can't figure out what it is I'm trying to say when you read this, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is I'm trying to say and why. Here it is, John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, notice a couple of things he says there. First thing he says is Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. In other words, these things were not done in secret. He did these things in front of all sorts of people. He did these things in front of his disciples. He did these things in front of other people that would see this all taking place. They weren't done in secret. They did them, he did them so everyone could see. He also says that there's more of them that happened than are recorded in his book. When he talks about the book, he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about his chapter, his book. And he says, listen, I've recorded a couple of them. Some of you who know the Gospel of John know he records seven specific signs, seven specific miracles. He says, but there's a lot more that happened. I just captured a few of them. It means that John says this, I've only recorded a few of them, but there are so many more. I've chosen some specific ones for a specific reason, but you need to know that there's volumes that could be written on what Jesus Christ actually did. But there's a reason that I have chosen them and the reason that I've recorded them for you. He says, I did it so that you will believe. Not that you'll hope that he's the Messiah. That you will believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he qualifies it because when you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, when you do that, you get life. You have absolute life. You have eternal life. Yes, you have life to its fullest, abundant life. John doesn't start with the idea that says, well, I, I believe because someone told me to, and then I just hoped it all worked out. John goes, no. One of the things you have to love about the disciples when you read the scriptures, is that they were not easy to convince. What I like about the disciples is this. At one moment they believed, then they didn't believe. And then they believed, and they didn't believe. They went back and forth all the time. They believed, they didn't believe. They were sure, then they were unsure. They were trying to figure this thing out, what to believe, what, how to sort this out, and they weren't easily convinced. Listen carefully. It wasn't faith that convinced them. It wasn't faith that moved them. It was what they saw, it's what they had heard, it's what they had experienced. That's why it's so important. John says this to us. Here's the introduction statement. Listen, I was not easily convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And it was not a matter of faith for me. John says, I saw these things and they made me a believer. And then he says this, and if it was good enough for me, my hope is it will be good enough for you. Because I saw them, and I want you to see them. I want you to experience them. And notice what John says in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. That word signs is kind of interesting because normally we talk about the miracles of Jesus, right? Not the signs of Jesus. So usually we kind of just substitute that word sign out for a miracle. Jesus did many other miracles, and that does fit, but it's interesting that he uses the word signs. He uses the word signs very, very specifically because you saw a sign points to something. A miracle by itself is a miracle, some event that we can't explain that takes place. But what he says is this, there were many other signs and signs point to something. 
He says there are too many people that simply look at the miracles and get excited about the miracles. But John says you got to look beyond the miracle and look at what the miracle tells you about the person. John knew that to be focused on just the miracle was a mistake because there's something about these signs. Let's look at the first one this morning, then we'll be done. First sign. Every single person here listening in person, watching online, every single person has heard of the story of this first sign. Here's the story. It's in John chapter 2. Here's our text. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone, stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best until now. This, of course, is the story. This first sign is the story of, the, of Jesus turning the water into wine. Everyone knows the story. Now, immediately, I want to point something out to you about this miracle, which is quite odd, and that is that John doesn't even talk about the miracle itself. Do you realize that? doesn't talk about it. The statement that it happened is kind of a, a side note, a byproduct. And this is so odd to every other miracle. You see, there's a guy who's blind, and Jesus goes up, and he spits in the dirt, and he makes mud, and he spears the mud on the guy's eyes, and then tells him to go wash his eyes off, and when he does, he sees. See, we have the whole accounting of the miracle. Another guy is lame, and Jesus comes along and says, pick up your mat and walk. We have the accounting of the miracle. Jesus turns the water into wine, and it isn't even really recorded. It's kind of a footnote. You notice that? He says, now take, a, take some of this water over to the master of the banquet, and he takes a sip, and he says, and he tastes the water that had turned to wine. When did that happen? When did that happen? But what's interesting, he doesn't even tell the story. He doesn't even tell us about the miracle itself. Understand something, by the time that John records this story, everyone in Christendom knew about it already. This story had already embedded itself in the story of Christianity. When people read John's story, nobody said, wait, wait, wait a minute, water, water into wine? What? When did that happen? They all knew about it already. The story had already been out there. And what's interesting, John doesn't even talk about the miracle itself because the story is not about the miracle. It's a side note. Now, look at some of the details of the story. They give us some incredible detail. Number one, it's the third day. That means it's a Tuesday. Not Wednesday, but it's a Tuesday. There was a wedding in Cana. Cana's in Galilee, very much, you know, quite a bit north of Jerusalem. It says that Jesus' mother, Mary, was there along with Jesus and his disciples. It says a wedding, wedding on Tuesday. You go, wedding on a Tuesday night? Absolutely. Uh, in Israel to this day, weddings happen all throughout the week. In fact, when I would take uh, trips to Israel and take people with us, one of the things I'd always do when we get to Jerusalem is I would say to them, in the hotel that we're in, chances are good there's going to be a wedding every night. 
in the, wet, in, the, in the hotel, and they don't care at all if you pop your head in there and watch. I would encourage you to go do that. So one of my fun things to do is when I would, when I would be leading trips, I'd have dinner, and then I'd go find a couple of the reception halls and go in and just watch the festivities of the weddings and invite people to do that. One of my daughters, Sarah, or all my kids went with me at one time, but Sarah went with me to one of our trips. She was in college and soon to be married. She went with me, and we're, I said, hey, we're going to go out and watch a wedding tonight. So we went down and watched the wedding, and this was like a Thursday night or Wednesday night. And she goes, you know, wedding in the middle of the week? That's the way they do them. You're not doing them on the Sabbath, and you're not going to do them the day after the Sabbath. There's a lot of preparation to be done. So they do them on Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. That's when they do them. In fact, I'd make the case for her as a pastor. I said, you know, I got to tell you, I kind of like it. You know, I've done a lot of weddings in my life, which means you got a rehearsal and a dinner on Friday. You got all day Saturday. You, people got to, you know, and I said, I got to tell you, Tuesday night, uh, 7 o'clock, it's pretty nice. She came home. She got engaged. She said, Dad, I want to get married on a Thursday night. Absolutely, I'm in. Let's do it. Not to mention the fact that it was a 60% decrease in price using the venue by going on a Thursday night. I love it. Can we get 80% if we go to Tuesday or Wednesday night? You know, that's my attitude. Can we reduce the price? So Tuesday night wedding, that's common in that day. And um, it says here, well, Mary was there. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And just a side note for you, somehow, we're not exactly sure why, but Mary seems to have a role to play here. Mary's not just there, we don't believe in any way, shape, or form, as just a, a part, a, a, an, an invited guest, but Mary seems to have some role in the wedding planning. Maybe it's a wedding of, uh, the wedding of an extended family member, but it seems that she's part of the hosting committee, that somehow she's helping oversee the events, maybe overseeing the catering group. We're not sure exactly, but she has a role to play in this. And now, weddings were big events. And in fact, the wedding in this day would last days upon days, be a whole week's worth of events. But when it came to the wedding meal, the banquet, this was the highlight. This was the big moment of it all, which which helps understand why what took place was really a catastrophe. See, the wedding banquet would be the culmination of the whole week of the wedding plans. And so to come to that moment, and they ran out of wine. Folks, that is huge. In in, In a wedding in the Middle East... To run out of wine, this is a catastrophe. This is an embarrassment. I mean, it's like running out of water. It's like having a house full of company and running out of water. Literally, there's no water. Uh, It would be like you hosting a meal in your house, and quite honestly, you've got 30 people there for this meal, and halfway through the meal, you run out of food. Not you run out at the end so they can't have seconds, meaning halfway through the meal, half of the people have eaten, half have not. I think if that happens to you, you get the idea that this is an embarrassing thing that you planned so poorly. So running out of wine is a huge, huge deal. It means it's over. It means it's done. It's finished. Everybody go home. They're out of wine. An embarrassment and catastrophe. And so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Now, interesting. He knows that this is a problem. I mean, she doesn't have to go and say, I've talked to you for a good minute. I mean, you're not going to believe us, but they ran out of wine. And he says, well, what does that mean? Well, it, you know, it means, no, she has nothing, none of that. She just walks up and says they're out of wine, and he knows exactly the problem. She doesn't have to explain it to him. She just had to plead with him saying, listen, you take the other disciples, run down and get more wine. And take all of you because you know, two hands carry much, as much back as you can. Doesn't do any of that. Just says a simple statement, they have no more wine. That's it. At this point in the story, we have more questions than we have answers. So... Here's what we know. 
She turns to Jesus with no specific request. But clearly she knows that in a crisis, she can lean on Jesus. She knows that somehow he can do something about it. It kind of makes you wonder what it would be like to grow up in a house with a young Jesus, right? You know, when they're doing breakfast and she goes, ah, we're out of milk, and she turns around and the bottle's full. <laughs> How did that happen? You know, when one of the brothers says, you got the last bowl of Fruit Loops, and she goes, oh, I forgot, about, I forgot to buy more Fruit Loops. And then the other brother opens the cupboard and says, there's six boxes up here. Where'd that, where'd that come from? It kind of makes you wonder what it would be like to live with Jesus. Because up to this point, we have nothing recorded that he would have done any miracles. And yet, she knows that she can go to Jesus and say the simple statement, they're out of wine, and something's going to happen. So it just makes me wonder, what would it have been like to have Jesus in the house? Now, I love his response to her, because this is how I respond to Diane. She, she goes, woman. That's how I refer to Diane, woman. And I do that because it's biblical. <laughs> Whenever she says, I don't appreciate you calling me woman, I say, <laughs> it's the scriptures, I mean, woman. Now, please know, the, the translations we have here doesn't quite do it justice, because for most of us, we see woman, we think, man, what is that about? The actual Greek word here is actually a formal word, a formal term called my lady. The best, the, the best translation we have is my lady. You say, what does that mean? There was a formal term that he would use, that he would address her in a certain way without having to call her mom, and basically he says to her, listen, my lady. Now, quite honestly, we think that maybe he was just being funny. We think that maybe he was just being cute because it doesn't make a lot of sense as to the term that he uses. But I could see him with a smile. It's his mother. I could see him with a smile saying, my lady. But then he says, um, for whatever reason, he goes, my lady, what are you bothering me with this for? I mean, why are you bringing this to me? My, why are you involve me in this? My hour's not yet come. It's kind of like this. Hey, why are you involving me with wine at a wedding? I came to save the world, not to rescue this wedding. I got bigger, I got bigger issues here than the fact that the party's going to end too early. It's not my hour yet. It's not my plan right now to start doing public ministry and public miracles. So what are you bothering me with this thing for? Why? But what's interesting, Mary is not phased at all by his words. Because you look at it kind of as a rebuke when he goes, woman, why do you involve me in this? My lady, why do you involve me in this? My hour's not come yet. It kind of feels a little rebukish, but it doesn't phase her. I kind of get the picture in my mind that I think he says what he says. I think she smiles, kisses him on the cheek, and says, whatever. <laughs> I, I, I do. I think that's kind of what happened. But then what's interesting in the story, before she leaves, there's no great debate here. She kisses him on the cheek, I think, and says, you know, whatever. And then before she leaves, she grabs some servants and says, listen, whatever he says do, you do it. And then she walks away. So already you get this picture here that she knows that Jesus is capable of doing something. She has no idea what, but she goes to the servants and says, whatever he says to do, you do it. That gives us this picture that she had some role to play. She wasn't just a bystander. So she says to the servants, whatever he says, do it, and you do it. Now, you might be thinking, what kind of sign is this? This seems like it's a random story. Well, 
The story goes on, and then it begins to make sense. So the story says this. Nearby, there are six stone jars, water jars, that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. It says that each of them could hold between 20 to 30 gallons, which means upward of 180 gallons of water, which would also tell us that it's a fairly large wedding gathering. <clears throat> Quite a bit of water there that are now empty, which means they've used them <clears throat> for their ceremonial washing. And this was a Jewish wedding. And so in the Jewish wedding, don't forget the Jewish people are still under the covenant laws. The laws put in place by Moses. And one of those laws would be this, that when they came together for events, even to eat food, but for an event like a wedding, they would ceremonially wash. They would take this water that was blessed, typically blessed by the religious leaders. They take a cup of it, pour it over their hands, and a ceremonial look, have the water drip off, and that they were clean and able to go eat. So this was part of the Jewish law. But the laws, now make sure you hear this, because here's where it becomes important to the story. But the laws of sacrifice and the laws of spiritual ritual washing, they were always only temporary. When Moses put this covenant in place, when they put the law in place, it was always going to be temporary until something better came along. This was going to be the thing that you were going to do to show that your heart is right until something better comes along. These six clay jars are critical to the story. These six clay empty jars are icons. They are relics of the traditions that Jesus actually came to fulfill. They are icons of the traditions that Jesus actually came to replace. The jars for ceremonial washing, they were what? Empty. And in this moment, not only were the jars empty, but they were completely ineffective for the moment, right? They're just empty jars. People here are needing something to drink. And these jars are absolutely empty and ineffective for the moment. They are symbols of what Jesus came to replace. That which was temporary that they had been practicing for hundreds and hundreds of years was now about to be replaced by something better, by someone better. In fact, by him who is perfect. The old system is about to be replaced with a savior. You see, friends, this wasn't just a miracle. It was a sign. It pointed to something. It pointed to someone. Jesus uses this moment, a wedding that had run out of wine, as a moment to illustrate the incredible new thing that God was going to do through his son. Jesus says to the servants, go fill the jars with water. And they do it. And then he says, take a ladle and take a cup of it and take it over to the master of the banquet. And so they do it. Here's what it says in John chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the servants who had drawn the, yeah, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Notice again that he doesn't even state the miracle happening. It's just happened already. There's no big deal about the moment. He says they take the water to drink. The guy goes, taste the water. It's actually wine already. 
The servants do what they're told. They take the water, they take the cup to the head, the head of, the, of the, the banquet, the head master of the banquet, the head caterer, if you will. He takes a drink and he goes, wow, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. And then he goes to the bridegroom and he says, you have done something that I've never seen done before. You see, everyone puts the best stuff out first because people eat and they drink, they have a little too much to drink, and then when they already had too much to drink, you bring out the, the bad stuff. But you did the opposite. You did the opposite. You have saved the best for last. You know what that means for us today? It means this. Let's get to some application. I want you to think right now in your life, what is the best moment you've ever had in your life? Now, let's be honest here. Our lives are marked with lots of pain along the way. I got it. But even with the pain, we have these moments where we would say, that's the best moment of my life. Think for just a moment, if you would. What's the best moment you've ever had in your life? What, what, do you, what rate's up there? You know, meeting your spouse, your wedding. How about maybe having children, that child? Maybe your best moment is when your children grow up and they get married, your child's wedding. Maybe it's a grandchild, whatever it might be. Maybe it's a job, you landed the perfect job. Just think in your life, what would you say is one of the best moments you've ever had in your life. Forget all the other pain. What's the best? Think about this. What this means to us is this. You take your best moment you've ever had on this earth, and it is nothing compared to what is yet to come. That's what it means. Because don't forget, when they got the bad wine first, they didn't know it was bad wine. They thought it was good wine. I mean, they, just, they had wine at the meal. It's like, this is fantastic. We're having a party. Then they bring out the even better stuff. Think of your best moment in this earth. And it is nothing compared to what is yet to come. For those who believe, he says, he has saved the best for last. Let's wrap up. John chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And look at this. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. You see, what Jesus did here in Cana was the first of the signs, it says. And the result of those signs, his disciples believed. Now, as we wrap up, just listen real, real intently for a moment. Unlike John and the rest of the disciples, our believing doesn't come typically by seeing, right? Our believing doesn't come by seeing. It means this, that they walked with Jesus. They were there with Jesus. Those disciples, they saw these jars filled with water. They know it was water. And then they went and tasted it after the head, the, the head banquet master is ranting and raving. I can imagine the disciples saying, I got to taste this. I, I got to see for myself. And they did. John would have been there and he would have seen it for himself. He would have taken that sip and he would have said, it's incredible. This is the best. But I know it was water. I saw it was water. I know that guy was blind. I knew him beforehand. Right? You can imagine that, right? They were there. They watched and they saw. They tasted the wine. They saw that it was good. But we weren't there. So if we believe, we don't believe based on seeing. For the most part, we believe by hearing. 
For us, our faith comes by hearing. But we are not required. Please hear this. We are not required. We are not asked to simply take it all by faith. We are not asked to say, well, you just got to believe it. No, no. You see, we are invited to believe based on the testimony of an eyewitness who saw it for himself. He was actually there. Think about this. When John records his book, he is probably one of the last of those original apostles' disciples left. At this point in time when he wrote it, we're not exactly sure when, but it's very possible that Jerusalem had already been destroyed, the temple had already been destroyed, Jews had already been taken away as slaves. The other disciples are all dead from martyrdom and suffering intense persecution. And John, we think, is probably one of the last ones alive to write his account. And based on all that he has seen, he doesn't recant. He doesn't write something and says, listen, i got to tell you before it's too late, it's all a joke. It was all made up. He doesn't do that. No, John says this, I have to tell you what I saw. I have to tell you what I have experienced because after I've seen it, it's made me a believer. And he said, I have to tell you this because when you hear it, you're going to believe it as well. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And for those who believe, you are given life. But don't do what most of us do. When we hear that giving life, we think, oh, eternal life, without question. But interesting, that word life that's used there is not written in a Greek word that would mean the coming sense. It's written in the now. What does that mean right now? It means if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, then COVID-19 should not scare you. The next disease that might come along shouldn't frighten you. Then why does it? We've got some believers that have acted through the whole COVID thing, have acted as if this is the worst thing ever to happen. Not if you believe. If you believe that he is the son of God, then gas prices going up to five or six dollars a gallon should not create for you anxiety. Believers are supposed to be different. If you believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and you have been given life now, not just eternal life, it means as we watch the horrible acts of violence happening to the people of Ukraine, you do not have to worry about the future or about the possible potential of a World War III because we have life in the Son of God. It's supposed to change us. And that's why John, after seeing his friends and his co-workers, many of them martyred and killed, would write a story that would say, you have to hear what I saw, because when you hear it, you're going to believe. And it will change how you view the world.
It will give you a peace that this world can't even begin to understand. And in the middle of this world's chaos, it will give you calm because he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And you can trust him. Stand, please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by believing, you give to us life in your name. May that not just may that may, may that not be simply an intellectual truth. For this morning, I don't preach to inform, but we preach for change. We preach so that as we sit in this world and we see the things happening around us, we would have a different view, a different approach. In a, in a world that's anxious right now, in a world that's undone, we'd be the people that they, other people want to be around because we have a calm about us. Because we know that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, and that when we believe in you, you give to us life. May that be true in each one of us. For the person who perhaps has never decided to follow you, whether today or whether through the course of this series, might they look at what John wrote down, what John recorded, and might they say, man, I see it and I believe as well. For those of us who are believers, but we get kind of wrapped up in the world events so that we forget what we believe, would you remind us again, we believe, Lord Jesus, that you are the Son of God that we can trust you. And this world will not end until you say it's time. And when it is time, we look forward to eternity with you. May that change our view. Dismiss us today in your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.